Welcome to a half-frame episode of The Real Photo Show. My guest today is Sasha Waters-Fryer. Uh, Sasha was a guest on the show about two years ago, and back then we were talking about this documentary she was starting on Gary Winogrand, which of course became Gary Winogrand, All Things Are Photographable, and that's been getting a lot of great press. Uh, we'll catch up on the success of the film and the awards and what it took to get it made. We'll talk in particular about a special jury prize she received from the South by Southwest Film Festival for Best Feminist Reconsideration of a Male Artist and what that means. And if you don't know, Sasha is a documentary filmmaker and chair of the Department of Photography and Film at Virginia Commonwealth University. So we have a, a great conversation about the process of making the film, takeaways, and what Sasha's working on next. Uh, she also has some great behind-the-scenes stories that she tells. And if you want to know more about what Sasha does, you can see her work at pieshake.com, P-I-E-S-H-A-K-E.com, which is linked on the website. And if you missed Gary Winogrand, All Things Are Photographable, and it, it did just show on PBS American Masters, but if you did miss it, it is streaming on just about every major platform. And we'll talk about uh, where it is showing and where Sasha's hoping it will be showing soon. Uh, so um, that's about it for now. I have some great episodes coming up with Michael Joseph and Victor Blue. Uh, I also recorded the Latin X Symposium at the School of Visual Arts with previous guest Veronica Sanchez Benkamo from Foto Femina. So that was a, a really nice reunion. So uh, thanks for listening, everyone. Enjoy the show, and we will talk soon. Well, hello, Sasha Waters Fryer. Hello, Michael. How are you? <laughs> All right. And uh, how are you? You have been on this whirlwind tour with Gary Winogrand, All Things Are Photographable. I have. It started in March of 2018 with South by Southwest Film Festival. And then we did the theatrical release at Film Forum and other theaters across the country in September of 2018. And then the PBS broadcast was... <laughs> April 2019. So it's really winding down. I've got a couple more screenings coming up that I'm going to present in person, but it's out there in the world and people seem to be responding well. So that's been really exciting. Yeah, it's actually streaming on every streaming service right now. It's I even found it on Walmart. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, see that? I didn't even realize. Is it? I don't. Is it on Amazon? I don't think it's on Amazon yet. Oh, you know, I, I didn't actually uh, yeah, count them off, but there were at least nine. It looked like six to nine streaming services that it was available on. Oh, that's good. So yeah. lots of people, everyone who loves Gary can find it if they're in North America. Outside right. of North America, it's still it's still been a challenge. Yeah, that's actually, um, even when I've posted about it, the first thing you get, and you've, I'm sure you've seen those messages, when is it coming to London? When is it coming to... And so what, what is the distribution uh, story about overseas? Sure. So the territories are, are broken up, basically. And the film has distribution in Scandinavia, across Scandinavia, in Australia and New Zealand. Oh. And in Italy, because there were distributors in those territories that wanted to pick it up. It does not have a distributor yet in the UK. And that oh. is where I get the most inquiries from, followed closely by Germany, where it also doesn't have a distribution yeah, because it's on iTunes in North America, we're looking into, you know, how do we unlock it? Basically, how can we unlock it right. for on iTunes for all those territories where it doesn't also have distribution? So that's something that's 
been in process, but it's been slow. I hope it happens soon because I have been getting a lot of questions it, about it. It sounds like a, an old holdover from the days when you could only buy DVDs or CDs for, uh, uh, from for certain uh, uh, territories, right? Like you could get it's, the North American DVD, but you had, yes. No, that is, and that's true today because I had some, I have... I think half a dozen Kickstarter supporters who have been waiting very, very patiently. I mean, I have many Kickstarter supporters waiting patiently for their DVDs. You included, and I you have it. either. I got, got it. it. Okay, Yay. good. So I've been, <laughs> but I have half a dozen who are in in the UK, and I I can't send them the DVD that I have produced in the US for that very reason because it won't work there. So I need to reach out to them and figure out something. Yeah, it's such an archaic They're, system. No, yes. It really is. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, this has been really great. Uh, so it was the um, special jury prize at South by Southwest Film Festival mm -hmm. and the official selection at the San Francisco International Film Festival. Uh, but I don't know, maybe the biggest accolade is you have like a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> oh, I haven't checked that in a while. So that yeah. is really good to know. Yes. Yeah, I think that... Um, I think people have responded well to the film I'm, every now and then. I'm just always surprised when I read reviews sort of what people hone in on and what people seem to respond to or, or not respond to but i think in general you know the film set out to find this balance between talking about his life and his work and they're so intertwined obviously and so i feel like they're it, it achieved it that finding that balance i do i do wish i had done an on-camera interview with his children you know right. film you finish a project. I'm sure you have this experience. It's done. The book is printed. The prints are on the wall. And you think, well, <laughs> maybe I, there's something I could have gone one step further. But yeah, um, and it's something that people ask about. But ultimately, um, yeah, I think there's enough of his family in there to to make that piece of his life accessible. Right. And I remember that discussion happening at the film forum and the, the post film discussion. Right. But, you know, you. <laughs> one of the things I wanted to ask you about is, you know, your, this is, is this your second feature film? It is. I mean, I've made hour long films, mm -hmm. so which are that they have a very particular kind of much smaller audience and different kind of life. Well, Chekhov for Children was fantastic. Oh, thank you. I so that was, that. that was my first real feature. That was, I think that's 73 minutes. Mm -hmm. And, but this is the longest film I've ever made. So it's 90 minutes. The PBS broadcast version is 82 two and a half minutes. So oh, I, did I didn't even realize that. It is. It's a little bit shorter. Ah. <laughs> Mainly, I mean, the, a big, a really easy place to cut was the end credits because in the feature version, the end roll is quite long because I got that REM song. I had a lot of people <laughs> I wanted to thank, so I just let it go. But PBS's end credits could only be 57 seconds. So that right there took two minutes out. And I cut some of the intertitle quotes as well. Oh, okay. But you left in all the uh, animation Yes. Definitely. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, but you know, so it's your longest uh, film and 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 sec second feature film. But you know, wh what kind of um, you, you you talk about what you could have done and what you what you left out, things like that. But what kind of um, you know, what does it take to put together something like this? And you're you're list you're a director. You had mm -hmm. to raise all the money. Um, you had one camera person with you, I think. I did. Yeah, and. I think I recorded with you the first time you were on the show after your first day here, after your first day in New York doing recordings. Would that have been in like August 2016? Yeah, I think so. Right. You had just seen Leo well, Rubenfein so, and then yes. you were on your way to see, uh, you, had, you had spoken to Susan Kismarek, I think? Yes. Yeah, I think you had just come from Susan Kismarek. 
Yeah. Right. That was a while ago. So <laughs> one of the one of the things that's an advantage to making this kind of documentary, a historical documentary, as opposed to a, an immediate social issue documentary, is that you can take time. It's not, wow, I really need to get this film out right now because it impacts this particular contemporary issue. So I did have the time. I mean, I also have a, a full-time job at VCU. So I did have the time to really dive deep into the research, do the grant writing, fundraising. And the filming, I mean, there actually is not a lot of filming. I think we had a total of six or seven shoot days. So 13 or 14 interviews spread out on those days. Really, the majority of the work was going through, I spent a week at the archives, going through the contact sheets. I did not go through all of the contact sheets. I think Jeff Ladd, who you know as mm -hmm. a photographer based in Cologne, who's an old friend of ours, he went through more contact sheets than I did. And I also had um, a couple of undergraduate research assistants helping me find try to find specific things. So that was time consuming. And then also the uh, working with his home movies and finding all that other media out there of Gary. But again, there's not a ton of it. So it's really, right. the meat of it is just his photos, which are really great to spend a lot of time with. Yeah, his photos and also the all the interviews, right? I mean, that's, right. that is the, the, that is what you have, right? <laughs> right. So the interviews, I, I'd say by the end, at the end of the day, I probably had between 16 and 20 hours worth of interviews. Mm -hmm. So if you think about an interview lasts 60, 90 minutes, maybe two hours, at the end of the day, there's only going to be a couple of minutes from each of those people. So, so many people had so many wonderful stories and great contributions, but getting it down to that core idea that they're trying to express was sort of the, was the challenge there. Yeah. And so it, it just aired on P American Masters on PBS, yes. which is fantastic. Um, and Granite Entertainment is the distributor of the film. Greenwich Entertainment is a wonderful uh, independent distribution company. They're really terrific. They are also the distributor for Free Solo, which blew up very large last fall and, you know, opened the week after Gary opened at the hmm. box office. I was like, come on, you guys. But <laughs> give, me, give me, I don't want to go up against Free Solo. But um, yeah, they're great. They've been really great to work with and very supportive and they picked up the film at South by Southwest. Oh, okay. And then how did, when did you learn that American Masters was going to pick it up? So I was having conversations with American Masters from fairly early on. I had uh, originally Michael Cantor, who's the executive producer of American Masters, had taken over the show from a long time, different producer pretty recently when we first met in, I believe, 2016. And he was initially reluctant, hesitant maybe is a better word. I think he really felt like he wants to push American Masters, if I can summarize what his mm -hmm. view was. I think he really felt like he wants to, he wanted to push American Masters uh, to skew a little bit younger, to not have, have more sort of living artists be profiled and maybe not so many older white men, let's say. And I think, you know, one of the things we talked about in terms of my making the case to him was just the, the global community that's so supportive of and celebratory around street photography and how it's, it is very young. And so there is, there is sort of a, a disconnect a little bit, I think, between what we see in galleries and museums mm. 
And then this this global community that's really existing online, right, for the most part, and this energy and excitement around learning about artists like Gary Winogrand or other street photographers, older and more contemporary. So that was one piece of it. And then I had a Kickstarter campaign in the spring of 2017. And that, I think, was what really convinced him, like, okay, there is support for this project. And it was around that time that they came on board verbally. It took a little while to sort of work out the details, but... Hmm. When you started that Kickstarter, did you have... Did you have any sense of whether or not it would be successful? When I started the Kickstarter, I was... I had done a fair amount of research on successful campaigns. Is it also fair to say you were somewhat hesitant to actually do a Kickstarter at the beginning? I was extremely hesitant. Even in terms of like legitimacy? In terms, in terms of, it's just a huge amount of work, and mm. you do the research, and you realize that. But when you're actually doing it, it's a lot, and it's also, it's also, you know, I'm a department chair, and I love advocating for the faculty who teach in my department, and advocating for the students, and going out and telling people, these people are doing this great thing. You should give them money. <laughs> but to do that for myself was really hard. And mm. also to really have to make direct asks. I mean, the, the campaign, it was down to the wire. You know, I, at some point, at a certain point, I thought, oh, maybe 50000 was too much to ask for. And this is going back to this idea of looking at successful Kickstarter campaigns. That was a great model. But I also, in some ways, wished I had also paid more attention to unsuccessful Kickstarter campaigns because I think I just made some strategic errors. And so when I was getting close to that 50,000 point, but not quite there, you know, there were people in the community here in Richmond, for example, who I knew, who I knew were donors and supporters of the arts, who I even had even expressed to people that I knew in common, like, yes, I want to support this, but who hadn't supported it. So I had to reach out and make phone calls and send emails and say, you know, I really would appreciate it if you could kick in. You know, and then people do and you think, okay, that wasn't so <laughs> terrible and hard to ask them, but it it does feel, yeah, it's a little bit scary yeah. to do starter. And I, I, don't know that I would want to do it again. The other issue was, of course, you know, the reward. Yes, that's <laughs> a big know, deal. You waited a very long time for your DVD because I didn't, you know, when I'm promising DVDs and thinking like when they'll be able to be delivered, I'm not thinking, well, a distributor, if, if a distributor comes on board, they actually set the calendar you, for. You, you don't when, know what you don't know. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, you, you're. You want to offer generous prizes, and you want right. people to have your film, but you don't. You don't realize that I I can't make that decision by myself if somebody picks it up, and how am right. I going to distribute this and not have it just pirated all over the place, and you know all those questions. Yeah. Right. I mean, I I do check once a month or so to see if it's being pirated. I did this more before it was on stream. I think once something is really out there in the world on streaming it's almost impossible to oh, keep yeah. it from being pirated. But when it was in theaters and not yet on DVD, I mean, the DVDs, I don't think are shipping yet quite yet because I think it needs to play on PBS for another month. But mm-hmm. I do check and it, I, I found it out there and yeah. you know, send my boilerplate language from my lawyer. <laughs> digital Millennial <laughs> Copyright ce- Act. Cease and desist. Yeah, I'm like, oh, you know, you comply with the Digital Millennial Copyright Act. But of course, I'm emailing some server and... right. <laughs> <laughs> in Cyprus, <laughs> they don't care. No. But. <laughs> oh yeah, no. But uh, what about um, 
getting back to comments, how deep, what what kind of a deep dive did you take into people's comments on social media and other places now that it's on streaming media? Mm-hmm. You know, I haven't really seen a lot of comments on social media. Mm. I mean, people have emailed me and and said nice things, so that's really great. No one's emailed me and said terrible things. <laughs> you know, the the one thing that I have found very surprising, and this I feel like is coming more from reviews. I haven't really heard audience members say mm-hmm. it, but it's it was surprising to me that reviewers referred to it as a sort of standard American masters or typical talking head in a sense that implied that it wasn't formally innovative. And I don't know that I would make the case. I don't think it is especially formally innovative, but I also don't think that it's a typical PBS documentary, whatever that right. might mean. I mean, for one thing, there's 400 photographs <laughs> that don't move. Right, no. <laughs> I mean, they don't, they're just, uh, right? So there it's is just, almost like this weird like structuralist avant-garde mm-hmm. thing happening. Like, they're there. They do not move. I mean, there are a couple of cuts in, but there's not a single pan or right. scan across an image. And then, of course, also the animation and the music, exactly. I feel like, are, are really different. So that was really surprising to me. I felt like that that PBS American Masters involvement was great, but it also seemed to... Standardize make, it. <laughs> it. It seemed to standardize it in the minds of of viewers or make people predisposed to think, oh, this is what this is. Well, yeah, let's let's put it where it is. Uh, people were expecting Ken Burns and they, they had that <laughs> mindset while they were watching it. Right. <laughs> and I do remember watching it and I don't remember thinking uh, this was a standard uh, kind of documentary because I've also seen your other work and I could see you in it. You know, oh, I, I could see your handprints all over it. That's good. That's yeah, good. yeah, because you have your own and, and maybe it's a, a little quirky or maybe it's a, it's a more avant-garde, but you yeah, you have your own way of piecing things together that um, remind us that there's there's an artistic practice going on while you're making this. Right. Oh, that's good to hear. I mean, editing was certainly editing is always my favorite part of filmmaking, going out and filming interviews. I love it when I'm sitting down and talking to the person. But as you know, Mm -hmm. the logistics around I've got to get to L.A. I hate driving. I've got to pick up camera equipment. That piece of it is um, it's I mean, there are people in filmmaking who love that piece of it. Mm -hmm. I just happen not to be one of them. I really, really like to just. I mean, like I'm a researcher and a writer and I want to go through the archives and I want to sit in my dark little office with my computer (laughs) and just edit, edit, edit. And that piece was really so satisfying, just thinking about how to take the challenge of that whole huge body of work and his really interesting life and distill it. And, you know, I would say that that not only the interviews, but certainly the essays that Leo Rubenfein and Mm -hmm. Susan Kismarek wrote, the catalog essays in the show that opened at SF MoMA in 2013 were extremely valuable in thinking about how to structure his story. I mean, I didn't know at the beginning that it would be chronological, but pretty quickly once I got into it, I realized I think it almost has to be chronological in terms of getting, you know, getting, you know, the childhood in the Bronx and then getting in, being really able to get into the work in order to spend the bulk of the time in the 1960s and 70s. Yeah. And I think that's probably going back to the the reaction people have to it as a documentary piece. Mm -hmm. That's the, that was the push and pull that you had to deal with Mm -hmm. something like Chekhov for children and and the production of uncle Vanya. You were dealing with something personal and it was outside of Philip Lopate's, you know, sort of a narration in some ways or, 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 you know, uh, interview. Um, You could 
be you, you were working with archival footage and you were doing you know you were doing it in your studio and you know and and sort of tucked away and and you could put as much of your own artistic practice into it as mm-hmm. you wanted to but here with I think with Winogren you had you had to get this information out you had right. to include so much information and that's that's where I think the the more documentary end of it comes in the more traditional style of documentary comes mm-hmm. in and I think people's perception of that because they're expecting to learn a lot about Gary Winogren right and I think I think the film, if you know about Gary Winogrand, I think you learn, I don't know if you learn anything new. At the very Mm -hmm. least, you see new images. There are 35, 36 images that have not been seen before in the film. And if you don't know anything about Gary Winogrand going into it, you (laughs) learn a lot. (laughs) Because there's a lot (laughs) to look at and to hear. And and I think the inclusion of his voice was really important to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that was really great to have the archival media, but then also to have those tapes that were recorded by Jay Maisel. Oh, I don't yeah. know. If, I don't know. Wait, okay. Did I tell you the story about finding those tapes? I don't think so. Okay. So it was the day I interviewed Susan Kismarek and we were wrapping up, you know, so we're you done with the interview. You hinted at this. You hinted at this and you said you couldn't tell me. Yeah. Oh, and so we're done with the interview and you know, the crew is packing up equipment. Susan and I are sitting there chatting. I think Michael had come over at that point. And Susan says, do you know about these tapes that Jay Maisel recorded of Gary? I said, no, what are you talking about? She said, well, they're at the Center for Creative Photography. And I said, no, I was there. I mean, I have the, I have the list. I know everything's there. And she said, no, no, you know, when he was moving out of his place on the Bowery, he found these tapes. So it had been pretty recent, you know, after I had gone to CCP. And she said, I've listened to them. They're not very interesting. <laughs> and I thought, um, you know, they're probably not. I mean, there are long stretches of them that are quite sure. boring. But what, but sitting in the diner like, and yeah, <laughs> she's but she's also she's thinking about it as a as a curator and a writer and someone who's working with visual media. I'm thinking as a filmmaker, like I need more of Gary in this movie. And there there is no other unrehearsed, unstaged media of him in existence everything is him teaching not that he's particularly rehearsed or staged when he's teaching but he's but, teaching he's yeah. giving an interview to bill moyers exactly he's he's doing he's giving an artist talk this is just he's hanging out in a diner with jay and they're talking about all kinds of stuff and so those tapes were just i was so thrilled when mm-hmm. i finally got to listen to them they're amazing <laughs> and and i think it's actually through those tapes that people have had the most sort of critical impression of Gary and the things he says in those tapes, right? Some of the things he says in the tapes. Yeah, yes. yeah. He, he was a person of his time and you can hear it in, his, in those conversations. Yeah, so there's the one moment in the tape where he is talking to Jay and he says, I believe facetiously, that he and Jay are talking about dating women, courting women. By this time, Gary is... With his third wife, so mm-hmm. he's he's he has quite a bit of experience <laughs> with these things, and he and he talks about he he makes a reference to grabbing women. I interpret it as a facetious exaggeration, a joke, if you will. There is absolutely no nothing in the record, nothing I heard from right. anyone who knew him that he was ever inappropriate with women. And in fact, Susan Kismarek and Aaron O'Toole watched rough cuts of the film you know I still had several months to work on it but it was sort of pieced together 
And they both said, but Susan said it very specifically. She said, I think the film is a little too hard on Gary when it comes to women. And I feel like you don't include enough that shows that he had friendships with women, that women really loved him and that he did have these good relationships with women. So I did try to correct that mm-hmm. and, and, and include more that tried to show that side of him, including actually parts of the interviews with Susan where she talked a little more about that. But I, I struggled with whether or not to keep that grabbing women line in. Even even when it was in the feature film, when American Masters looked at the cut down, they said, oh, you're leaving that in. I was like, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm leaving it in. I, I just, I feel like, yeah. yeah, when I was editing, I had it in, I had it out, I had it in, I had it out. And I just, I had to leave it in because I felt like that's, that's part of who he was and part of that right. time period as well. And you get those questions after the screenings and all. And, you know, right. because we are in the height of the Me Too movement and all, you get you get all the questions. And uh, you've handled it beautifully, I have to say. You've handled all oh, those questions you. really well because you're not shying away from it. You're not deflecting it. You're talking about exactly what you understood about Gary Winogrand mm-hmm. and the footage and providing some context of that footage that with more s- hypersensitivity that people might not realize is happening in the film, that context. Right. And I think also, I think people have appreciated the treatment of the book, Women Are Beautiful, Mm -hmm. and how that unfolds as well. And also because of where it falls in the film. So you sort of hear this grab line relatively early. And so you, you know, you could just say, oh, forget this guy. I'm out. I don't want to, you know, walk out of the film literally or mentally. But I think if you stick with it, the, the Women Are Beautiful discussion comes in the last third of the film because it is a it is a later part of his life and so that's where the conversation becomes a little more yeah. nuanced and i and i don't particularly like that book very much i mean i right. but at the same time there are images in there i just love so it's right. a mixed it's a mixed bag yeah yeah in fact the uh, the special jury prize is a, a feminist interpretation prize right well so <laughs> So this, so South by Southwest gives out their traditional prizes, but then the jury, they can award jury prizes and give them their own titles. Oh, okay. And so they made up this prize for the <laughs> film, which was uh, Best Feminist Interpretation of a Male Artist. So I really appreciated that because I yeah. felt like the jury really got it. And it's been surprising to me in Q&As that people don't ask about that. And it was also surprising to me that in reviewing the film, reviewers didn't comment Hmm. on that and you know they, they didn't think like well what is this right. that what does makes that mean feminist reinterpretation i mean i think for me it means i mean I'm, i can't say what the jury was necessarily thinking about but i do feel like the focus on gary's relationships with women in his personal life and his relationships with his children and how he really did have this conflict between his own ambition, his own drive to make pictures, his own desire to be out in the world and and working, 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 his conflict between those things and his desire to be with his family and his ability to be with his family. And I think it's something that female artists are asked all the time about how do you resolve this conflict between passion and ambition on the one hand and a family life on the other hand, because it is a conflict, but it's a conflict you know, you know, for oh, men yeah. as well. I, and I, so I, I think it's scary. not even a it's question. Like, I mean, I my kids are downstairs right now. I've got the door <laughs> locked. I'm hoping the dog doesn't start barking. <laughs> right. I mean, and it's something we talk about more now, but I feel like with, especially with, you know, someone in Gary's generation, I mean, I think his relationships, 
you know, and Susan says this, his divorces were really, really painful for him. And his relationship with his older children was, you know, and, and the amount of time that he didn't get to spend with them was a real source of pain and distress for him. And so I think instead of this narrative that we sometimes might get about male artists of that generation in particular, what's like, oh, well, you know, he had these problems or he was difficult in this way, but hey, that's okay because look at what a great career mm-hmm. art he had. I think I wanted to complicate that a little more and look at the ways in which that did impact him personally. And then, it, of course, it also comes out in the work as Tom discusses in the film. Yeah, with the, well, I don't want to spoil it. I, it's been out, but he that, that just that beautiful discovery he made. Yeah, right. yeah. I think it was in Filmmaker Magazine. They referred to the the rosebud discovery. I was like, yes. (laughs) That's fantastic. (laughs) Holy cow. (laughs) Well, so then uh, looking back now, I mean, I know you're still still doing it, um, but it is winding down a little bit in terms of uh, screenings and all. Uh, What what do you take away from it all? What do you what what do you think you'll um, take away and maybe uh, think about for your next project? Sure. Well, for one thing, I feel like I can't it's hard to imagine the stars aligning around another project the way they did around this in the sense of the way that Frankel Gallery and um, Gary's widow and the family were so trusting and hands off. I mean, they weren't, they weren't disengaged, but they really were, they were just amazing and continued to be really, really wonderful. I mean, that's just like, and that, again, like, you don't know what you don't know. Like, I realized, sure, working with a gallery, working with an artist's estate, and you've got all these different players and family members, it could be really oh, yeah. difficult <laughs> right? and controversial. And, I mean, even, I'll tell you one quick story about, so, you know, near the, the very end of the film, Adrian, Gary's first wife, says, she says, he was such a bastard. Like, she's like, she's talking about how she loved him, but then she goes, right. she was such a bastard. In the actual interview, she goes, he was such a bastard. He was a real fuck. <laughs> and when I showed a rough cut to Ethan, he said, he said, you, you have to take my, you have to cut my mom saying the F-bomb. She'll just be mortified. She'll be so embarrassed. And I was like, oh yeah, I can do that. That's not a problem. Yeah. But it was like that kind of, you know, it's like that kind of thing. Like, of course. And just, yeah, the family was so easy to work with the Center for Creative Photography, where the archives are, were really, really fantastic. So I know. How is that going to inform my next project? I guess I just have to hope my luck holds out. <laughs> In terms of um, production, though, any, anything you've picked up? I have. Well, I have. It's funny because um, I would love to be able to pitch another American Masters. Mm. I, I haven't quite landed on anything yet. And, uh, and I, I don't think I want to make another film about a photographer. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm sort of thinking about that. Um, I do... Let's see. Do I want to talk about this project? I'll talk about this project because I've started grant writing for it. I'm going to write an NEA hmm. media arts grant um, for this summer. So it's a little complicated. So feel free to cut all this out and not include it. But <laughs> So there's an artist named Bruce Connor. He's a little bit like, he's nothing like Gary Winogrand in terms of the work, but he's a little like Gary Winogrand in that if you know who Bruce Connor is, you're like, of course I know who Bruce Connor is. He's huge. He's a very, very important mid-century artist who worked in multiple media. There was a huge uh, retrospective of his work at New York's MoMA in 2016. He's best known, I, I think, of course, people in other fields might feel differently. He's best known for his avant-garde, his short avant-garde collage films mm. from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. 
really unbelievably fantastic artist. I mean, he should be up. He should be known. He should be as known as Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns. He's he's vital. So in in 1984, he although he had made 17 short films, avant-garde films that had screened very very widely in the U.S. and internationally. He set out to make a documentary in 1984. He set out to make a feature film about the Soul Stirrers, who were the first African-American traveling gospel group. They had been very active from the 30s through the late 50s, early 60s. By 1984, and their membership had changed some over the years. By 1984, they're older, mostly retired, and he brings them together for a reunion concert. He films interviews with them. He films in their home. He travels to Texas and Illinois. He shoots 60 hours of color 16 millimeter film, much of which he's in actually because he has oh. someone else shooting. And then he doesn't make the film. Oh. So <laughs> that is not an elevator pitch. That's as <laughs> short as I can get it. That's the movie. I think that's that the, is. I think that's that is the movie a great I want to make. I want to make the movie about Bruce Connor making a movie about the Soul Stirrer. So it's like in my wheelhouse because it's mm. a Archival huge footage. archive. There's already 60 hours of footage. Uh-huh. Uh, two really huge, um, important American artists, Bruce Connor on the one hand and the Soul Stirrers on the other, who were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in the 80s. And Sam Cooke was their most famous member. They're totally incredible gospel group. Yeah, that's interesting. I was talking to Andrew Moore. Oh, I know Andrew Moore. And he did that documentary on Ray Johnson. The, the great avant-garde what? artist. And I, I, I have to admit, I didn't know who Ray Johnson is, and I d- didn't know who you were talking about until you told me about it. And that, isn't yeah. that amazing? These these people have these, in their moments, incredible careers surrounded by, surrounded by the you know the greatest people, and, and they die, and we don't know about them anymore. Yeah. I know. I know. Right, unless they're kind of in your specific field. And so that's another, I mean, that's another piece of it, is that, I, I mean, there was this big retrospective of Bruce Connor at MoMA, but and I think there's been one major sort of academic book about him that I could find, but mm-hmm. but the idea when I learned about this film, when I learned about this footage that he had shot, that's just been sitting in an archive basically since the late 1980s, and he's he passed away in 2008. I just became obsessed with it, and and the Connor Family Trust has shared I think about 30 minutes mm. of it with me, so I've seen some of it that was edited together, and I just. I just thought I just I just want to see all of this footage. Yeah. Like it's so amazing and important and it's it's kind of crazy because you have this white artist from Kansas who's like part of the beat and punk scenes in San Francisco. Wow. He's making this film about these gospel singers and he's <laughs> kind of in it with them and yeah. so I was I was really excited by that. That's great. Oh, so b- before we wrap up, I I am installing a uh, an 86 inch monitor in my gallery, which I would like to do screenings for. Oh, <laughs> so it, whenever, whenever this becomes available for a screening, let me know. Okay, okay. <laughs> 86 inch monitor. A flat panel monitor in my gallery, so I can do screenings. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, that's yeah. Great. I think I'll be uh, screening the the Harold Feinstein Coney Island documentary that um that Andy Dunn did. And, oh yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, let me know. <laughs> yeah, I will. <laughs> Every project takes me five years. I always think it won't, and I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> it's gonna take these five years. So, well, 
Well, it's been great catching up with you. And yeah, really, you too. Congratulations on, on all the success. It's really been fun to watch and uh, really amazing. Uh, have I you, know you were there right at the beginning. It's uh, so funny that we did that interview so long ago. You I had just come it. from Susan. And, yeah. and, and, and honestly, you, you told me a little bit about the footage off air and swore me to secrecy. <laughs> oh, about the James L. Yes, tape. yes, yes. Right. <laughs> okay, right, because at that point I was like, "What is?" You probably what didn't is even know what you were saying. Thing? Right? Like, what is this thing? I don't know what it is. Like Susan just told me about it, and like I, I hope it's good. And then I got the tapes, and <laughs> and then the you know getting Jay Mazel to sign off on the release was fine, but at first yeah. he was kind of put off by like the legalese of the contract I sent him. And I was like, Jay, you're a commercial photographer. Like, this is not... You have people sign their lives away. <laughs> I know. I was just like, this is just like a template that my lawyer gives me. Like, why are you, you know, he was like, I thought we were friends. I was doing this for you as a friend. I'm like, oh, okay. That you know? is funny. I do find um, some some of the photographers who have uh, been around a while, uh, when I do the podcast with them, they, they get a little more nervous about what I'm going to put out there in the world. I don't know if you've discovered that in interviewing oh, people. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe people of a certain generation or who really who've been doing it longer and have gotten burned over the years, maybe. Sure, yeah. that could be. <laughs> well, thank you again. And uh, yeah, uh, good luck with uh, the, the next thing. All right. Thank you, Michael. I hope we get to catch up in person soon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Are you coming to New York uh, again? Or maybe I should come I, to Virginia. I know. You should come down here. It's amazing down here. Yeah. Um, I I don't know when. I'm hoping to. We usually try to get up at some point during the summer. But since my mom moved down here, oh, we don't go as often. Right. So, <laughs> but yeah, I, I do hope to. All right. Well, it's been great. And thanks. And uh, okay. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye.